Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project... Five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails remastered This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fells' remastered look at the War of the Spanish Succession, which originally aired as one episode on the 27th of June, 2012. You're very welcome back to the war. Last time we set the scene and gave you some background information on the other figures and powers at the helm of Europe, while we critically examined the dangerous state of affairs in Spain and why that succession posed such a challenge to Europe's policymakers. Here we resume our coverage. So let's just jump back into it without any of the traditional rambling that I normally do and examine the crucial opening moves of the war. I will now take you to late 1701. Negotiations are not happy when not seconded by the events of war. Louis XIV of France Before I get into the war, I have three quite large points I want to cover. The first concerns Spain, since you might be wondering what the Spanish people actually think about all this fuss going on in Europe about their monarch. Spain was not united behind Philip V in 1701, though in time a different story would be told. Philip had received a state verging on bankruptcy as part of his new inheritance, but Louis told him that Spain needed to be ready for war, so Philip went about making 
practical cuts in the Spanish court, such as reducing the number of gentlemen of the bedchamber from 42 to 6, cutting down the unnecessary large amount of servants and advisers, and so on. Then Philip got bored of sensible cuts and sought some speedier but altogether crazier solutions. He reduced pensions without reimbursing the citizens. He took possessions of vast amount of land from his subjects, which hampered Spain further because it reduced its capacity to effectively trade its way out of insolvency. Then he took off to invade Naples, for some reason, a move which was opposed in Spain and even more so in Naples itself. Imagine that. This was the same Italian population who had known Spanish interference all their lives, and they were less than happy to see the monarch of their oppressors arrive on their doorstep. Philip at this stage wasn't a very good general either, so that didn't help. He blundered his way through some brief skirmishes, handed the situation back to his more capable subordinates, and left to return to Madrid. In Philip's efforts to acquire cash, he sold the rights to the slave trade in the Spanish overseas colonies to France, a move which, of course, infuriated the maritime trading powers of England and the Netherlands, who wanted Spanish slaves all for themselves. Philip looked like he would defeat Spain all by himself, or perhaps be defeated by it. His advisers would take no action to defuse the financial problems Spain had without Philip's okay, but Philip was very slow, perhaps even reluctant, to okay anything without his granddaddy Louis' okay first. This bizarre chain of command further alienated the Spanish population from Philip, who wanted a sovereign monarch, not one who took orders from a foreign power, and especially not from France. His popularity was waning, and Philip knew his subjects would not take much more austerity before they began demonstrating their unhappiness. Already before Philip had been crowned, it was clear that he would not have the support of all of Spain, as the regions of Valencia, Aragon, and Catalonia decided to side with the claims of Archduke of Austria, Charles VI, the son of Leopold I. And the Allies, it was expected, would prepare invasions for these regions to flip them against Philip and into the Allied sphere of control. Before long, it seemed, Spain would be split between pro and anti-Philip, or pro and anti-Ally. A second thing I want us all to bear in mind is that while all this was happening, another war involving Russia, Poland, Sweden, Denmark, occasionally Prussia, and eventually Britain, was raging in Scandinavia and northeastern Europe. The Great Northern War, as it's now known, would last from 1700 to 1721, and would prevent any of those nations getting involved in this conflict. Despite numerous efforts to diplomatically rein in Scandinavia's powers, and to include the former French ally of Sweden in the War of the Spanish Succession, that portion of the continent was effectively tied up for the next two decades. My last point will lead us into the war itself, and regards Louis XIV's disastrous use of diplomacy. We've seen in previous episodes how great miscalculations, twinned with Louis's infamous pride, led him to do foolish and short-sighted things, and these facets of his character formed their own kind of backstory for this war as historians have argued on the one hand that it wasn't all Louis's fault, and that he had learned how to not poke Europe with a great stick for the umpteenth time, while on the other hand, some historians maintain that Louis's pride doomed France to yet another war. As usual, the truth is somewhere between the two, but I'll just run through a few of the diplomatic chances that he blew before war broke out. Let's see, he put his pride above the national interest by insisting on breaking the treaty he made with England, he caused outcry when he invaded the Netherlands' border forts to ascertain their strength. 
He caused irritation in England and the Netherlands when he sent a diplomat to negotiate with the Dutch in The Hague, even though he had given this diplomat, Count Davo, explicit instructions not to agree to anything and merely stall the diplomatic proceedings. And finally, as we saw at the end of the last episode, he sent a clear message to England when he recognised the son of the monarch that they had recently ousted as the rightful King of England. Louis could have contained the mounting unpopularity of his country in Europe by moving with more tact and less aggression, but he seemed set on war, at least to some extent, and for whatever reason, he proceeded to blow the many chances he had to rein back in the situation. So, war is what Europe got as a result of this. Now that's not to say it was all Louis's fault, and we would be unfair and one-sided in our coverage if we failed to allude to the other side of the story and play devil's advocate in Louis's case. The opposite side to that of Louis's rampant pride, reasons that Louis's policy up to this point had placed him in a kind of a bind. Take James II, for instance. In the years before, Louis had declared war in the name of James's interests, when he was usurped from Britain by William III. Louis was then forced to rush to his defence, as much for the strategic interest of France as for his own belief in the divine right of kings. William's invasion and glorious revolution was an obvious threat to Louis's character and principles, as much as it was to James II's reign and the interests of France. Logic followed that Louis would have to recognise the heir to the British throne to be none other than James's son, or else he would be betraying his instincts as an absolute monarch and handing over the reins of the British monarchy to the monarchs that were already ruling in Britain at the time, and thus giving up one of the great strategic poles that France had to lean on. Having considered all this, though, a British contemporary of the era noted how the French Council of State at the time recounted that Louis was surprisingly indecisive regarding the status of the new head of the exiled Stuart family. It was not as straightforward as you may expect, in other words. The king's indecisiveness came from the obvious provocation that such an announcement would represent to Britain, especially when Louis was trying to keep Britain sweet, as we know, and away from the Dutch in another coalition against him. What really turned the tide was the Dauphin, who interposed with some heat in the matter of recognition, since the Grand Dauphin, Louis XIV's son, thought the king in honour bound to do it. He was of his blood and was driven away on account of religion, so orders were given to proclaim him at Saint Germain. This gave a universal distaste to the whole English nation. All people seemed possessed with a high indignation upon it to see a foreign power, that was at peace with us, pretend to declare who ought to be our king. For another example, we've already seen how Carlos's will gave Louis little choice, and that he felt compelled to act lest he lose everything to the Austrian Habsburgs, but what of the economic measures Louis sought for France? For many years, the Anglo-Dutch merchant interest had sought and acquired the best deals for their own peers. In the decades of expansion seen under Louis XIV, it was only natural that Louis would want some of these advantages for himself. He certainly understood that the rivals of France would cry foul, but since France had been on the outside looking in for so long when it came to foreign trade, perhaps Louis reasoned that it was time he take for French finances what neither the British nor Dutch were willing to give in a settlement. Furthermore, France had, of course, accumulated great debts over the course of the previous few decades, thanks to its many wars, which required the infusion of funds to settle. What better way to ease these problems than with an injection of funds sourced from the new avenues of trade, where French merchants could avail of new opportunities in a fresh sphere of economics? 
that Louis was thinking economically rather than militarily is explained by his gradual growth and maturation as a monarch and a man. John A. Lynn's model, which we've come back to time and again, of Louis's development comes to mind when he mapped out Louis as being first interested in glory through expansion, then becoming interested in glory through resolute defence, and finally defending the interests of France because he felt he had no other choice. In the circumstances which Carlos's death created, Louis perhaps felt that he had few options other than the one which had served him comparatively well over the previous decades. War was a major aspect of Louis's reign and character, of that there can be no doubt, but Louis should never be mistaken for the fool who rushed in, well at least not at this stage in his life. Upon learning of Louis's recognition of James Francis Stuart as King of England, William's task became much easier. A diplomatic mission was due to be sent to The Hague when in March 1702, William fell off his horse and died from his injuries. His death meant that the Netherlands and England would not be a unified nation, but would regain their respective independence. I'm not even going to comment on how sad it makes me that someone as significant as William III, whose life I've really covered for the last few episodes in When Diplomacy Fails, died from something as, well, boring and spectacular and mundane as falling off his horse. Anyway, the the fact that William's death might have meant the end for the Netherlands and England as a unified nation might seem like a bad thing for the Allies, and certainly Louis believed it was, but William's death brought a new queen to the English throne, Queen Anne, who, incidentally, was the daughter of the late James II through his first wife, and thus the half-sister of the pretender, James Francis Stuart, now in exile in France. Anne was the queen who could rally her subjects effectively to the cause of war against France, though. She was able to convey the threat posed by France far more effectively than, arguably, William had been able to. Mostly because, hooray for xenophobia, her Englishness meant that she was seen as a breath of fresh air in comparison to the foreign William, which obviously wasn't an entirely fair thought process, as William had been half-British himself, after all. In short, William's death actually helped England, and thus the Allies, focus their attention on the war. Perhaps now that the two powers were separate entities, the move towards war seemed somehow less intimidating, and British decision-making, in the process, seemed more flexible. So Anne sent the mission that William had planned to The Hague a little bit later than March, in May 1702, and England's ministers promised their full support of the Dutch against France. With this assurance, both nations jointly declared war on France on the 15th of May 1702, beginning the Spanish War of Succession as we know it, just five years after the last war had ravaged Europe. In terms of ravaging, this war would be no different. The War of the Spanish Succession was the playground for some of history's most famous men, Two of these, Prince Eugene of Savoy and John Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough, deserve some background information before we focus on the nitty-gritty aspects of the war. Mostly so you properly know who these two guys are, since they pop up a lot in the coming campaigns, but also because both have some pretty fascinating stories to back them up. Starting with Eugene of Savoy then, he was born in Paris in 1663, and spent a good deal of time around Louis XIV's court only to be rejected for service in the French army due to his poor physique. I bet that if Louis could have turned back time, he would have hired Eugene instead of rejecting him, because Eugene vowed never to return to France upon his rejection, unless it was, as he put it, 
at the head of a significant army, which wouldn't have mattered to Louis except that Eugene turned out to be a military genius. So Eugenius, as I've taken to calling him, moved to Austria and began to serve the Habsburgs instead of France. Eugene's cousin was the Duke of Savoy, which is where he gets his famous surname, but what is Savoy, you might be wondering? Well, here's a few interesting facts about Savoy, which was then a small duchy spread over what is now southern France and northwestern Italy. The House of Savoy, as the ruling family were known, ruled the small territory of Savoy, which expanded by its use of careful diplomacy and political marriages to achieve its autonomous status. It was actually allied with France by the time Eugene's cousin, Victor Amadeus of Sardinia, was its duke. The House of Savoy is also one of the longest reigning dynasties in Europe, and dates its lineage back to 1000 AD, when it was claimed by the King of Burgundy, Rudolf III. It went on to rule Sicily following the War of the Spanish Succession, and then its last duke, Victor Emmanuel II, went on to become king of a newly unified Italy in 1870, continuing that line of succession until they were deposed after the Second World War. Savoy, at the time of the War of the Spanish Succession, was a valuable ally. Despite its size, it held considerable sway in Europe, as diplomats and various other influential figures, such as Eugene, above all, made a name for themselves under the banner of Savoy. As for the other famous chap, John Churchill was an English statesman. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And soldier, born in 1652 working-class English family, and began his career as a lowly page in the House of Stuart, but would eventually rise to prominence following his defection from James II to William III and during his successful campaigning in the subsequent War of the Grand Alliance. John Churchill was suspected of having sympathies for the Jacobites at various times throughout his life though, and this would cause him to spend a brief stint in the Tower of London at the end of the 17th century. Once William III died though and Queen Anne replaced him, she restored him to his previous command and began relying on him heavily. 
John's wife, Sarah, was a bestie of the Queen, you see, so John began to see the benefits of this about the same time that the war began. Thankfully for England, though, John was not just a pretty face or a beneficiary of nepotism. He was also a very capable commander, arguably the most capable land commander that England had ever seen. Both these men, Eugene of Savoy and John Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough, would form a sort of tag team during the coming war, with Eugene representing Austria and Churchill representing England, and their joint command of the Allies would lead to some of their most famous victories, such as Blenheim, Ramillies and Oudenard. When the campaigning began, everything was a bit up in the air, because Eugene was already fighting the French in Italy in the name of Austria, and England was scrambling to form an army which it could conjoin with the Dutch. The Holy Roman Empire was also calling on its member states to provide troops, an example of which was the bribing in the form of naming the Prussian prince, Friedrich I, or Frederick I, the king in Prussia, so that he would form an alliance against France and send 8,000 troops to aid the Austrians. Before we delve too deeply into the military state of affairs, it is worth spending a few minutes looking at how the Holy Roman Empire, as a whole, viewed the impending war, and what that said about the men who led those German states. If you're a fan of when diplomacy fails, you'll no doubt remember the strange relationships many of the states of the HRE had with the rest of Europe. Brandenburg-Prussia is an obvious example, but the Palatinate, of course, lent its elector to the line of the royal family, which would shortly after this war, in fact, find a way to take the British throne, having expanded through a series of further descendants into Hanover, where it was to remain for some time. Saxony was in the running by this stage to have its elector nominated as King of Poland-Lithuania, a still prestigious though somewhat declining role. As we've already seen, one of Leopold's sons, as Archduke of Austria, was in the running to be King of Spain. But Leopold himself was already Holy Roman Emperor, so... When this didn't work out, there wasn't huge disappointment, considering what this Archduke Charles would stand to gain in Vienna. My point is, there remained perhaps only one German state, Bavaria, that seemed to stand out from this tale of ambitious German prince-electors marrying their way into proper kingdoms. This seemed to change, though, with the news that the elector of Bavaria, Maximilian Emmanuel II's son, Joseph Ferdinand, was to be the accepted candidate for the throne of Spain. Max Emmanuel relished the opportunity to expand his family's interests, but when his son died of smallpox in 1699, unfairly throwing everything out of whack in the process, it was back to square one for Bavarian intrigues. This dissatisfaction with the way the wind had blown led Max to appeal to Leopold for the thrones of Naples and Sicily as a consolation prize, but Leopold rebuffed him. Facing this prospect and understanding that Louis could offer Bavaria great advantages, owing to the strategic position of Bavaria and the foil it would present to Vienna, secret diplomacy began between Munich and Paris in the months leading up to the outbreak of war in spring 1702. This move proved to be a diplomatic coup for France, as troops had to be diverted across the board to contend with this new Bavarian threat, making any moves against France less effective in the opening years. The issue also split the Allies, because Leopold appealed to London for monetary aid, so that Imperial troops would be able to subdue Bavaria by force, while Queen Anne reasoned that Bavaria should be induced out of Louis' orbit through diplomacy and bribes, such as just giving him the parts of Italy that he wanted, 
so that Bavarians could be better utilised as a stronger bulwark against Paris. In an almost incredible turn of events, the most damaging threat to the coherence and stability of the Allies against Louis was not French interests or even the French king himself, but Bavaria's unpredictability and military success. Max Emmanuel, an experienced elector and knowledgeable of all things Holy Roman Empire, ordered his armies to aim for the weak points of that empire, the smaller German states and state groupings which the Allies needed free passage through for future operations. By targeting these, and then by moving east and targeting the seat of the Imperial Diet itself, Max made clear that he was playing for keeps. Until the Bavarian problem was solved, Leopold knew that his forces couldn't move without fear of attack, and a determined effort could not be made as a result against France. Maximilian surprised one of the Emperor's most important allies along the Rhine, Louis of Baden, and attacked his army as it neared Alsace, forcing Louis of Baden to retreat, which in turn enabled one of Louis XIV's favourites, the Duke of Villars, to defeat him in the Battle of Friedlingen in October 1702. Although in the grand scheme of things it was a Pyrrhic victory for Villars, and he had been prevented from hooking up with Bavaria, which had been his goal all along, Bavarian dangers were clearly demonstrated. The Allies couldn't move unless they knew where Bavarian forces resided, and if they weren't careful, Louis and Max would combine their forces against this grand alliance. That's not to say that the alliance was destined to be a pushover from the beginning, and that all it took was the tiny state of Bavaria to push it over the edge. Once the war had officially begun, Leopold placed 20,000 soldiers on the Rhine under the command of the aforementioned general Louis of Baden, while 40,000 followed Eugene of Savoy to the Italian theatre. Early in the summer of 1702, the Anglo-Dutch army was moving to position itself near Nijmegen on the Dutch border. Isolated to the south lay the very well-fortified city of Maastricht, with a garrison of 14,000 and huge supplies. In short, the Allies were well prepared to face whatever Louis could throw at them. So Louis sent 60,000 men to the Low Countries, French armies were also sent to Italy with 60,000 men, and an additional 20,000 men were then sent to guard against Louis of Baden in the Rhineland. Yes, a lot of men were being sent by France at this stage. The question of whether or not France could afford it was mostly ignored in the opening years of the war. As far as Louis was concerned, he needed these soldiers to plug the gaps, or the Allies would soon come pouring right through them. It was when both sides were lining up that Bavaria's stance in the war became apparent, and the aforementioned surprise attack against Louis of Baden was launched. The Allies, while they had reinforced the varied theatres, were still spread thin, almost as thin as Louis XIV had been, and thus a wild card, as Max of Bavaria represented, could do unforeseen damage by upsetting the carefully balanced apple cart and roaming through lands whose soldiers had been stationed elsewhere. Perhaps because Leopold had counted so heavily on Bavarian friendship, he was ill-prepared to deal with Max's unpredictability, and thus the coup from Louis' diplomacy became all the more apparent. An interesting event happened in the seas of Europe in July of 1702 as well, as an Anglo-Dutch fleet had been sent to besiege Cadiz on the south of Spain, when it retreated after two months. No doubt miffed about its withdrawal with little to show for its efforts, while sailing back home, the Anglo-Dutch fleet got wind of a treasure fleet sailing in from America to resupply the Spanish with some much-needed gold for their war effort. The Allied Admiral in this case, an Admiral, Sir George Rook, 
moved quickly to intercept and destroy this fleet. On October 23, 1702, he attacked the Spanish fleet, and in the process destroyed not only the treasures on board the ships, but also the not inconsiderable number of French ships which had been sent to guard them. In a story similar to that of the Bavarian issue, where a situation in one theatre had ripples, which affected the entire conflict, this naval victory had almost immediate consequences. Even though the Spanish had saved the majority of the silver, and it hadn't been a crippling loss of wealth to them, it was still bad news for Philip and a massive morale boost for the Allies. It also helped persuade the Portuguese king, Peter II, to throw his lot in with the Allies in early 1703, which only further compromised the Bourbon position in Europe. Eugene of Savoy then rounded off 1702 by holding the French and Spanish at bay and defeating them in numerous skirmishes, while always retreating in good order before he could be surrounded by the superior combined Bourbon forces. As 1702 became 03, the Netherlands focused on attacking the stronghold of Bonn in Germany, and John Churchill was sent to command the Anglo-Dutch force which would capture it. Bonn was important because it hindered communications between the Allies, and would be a valuable commodity in Allied hands due to its strategic position on the Rhine. While Marlborough saw success throughout the year, his Austrian allies were suffering successive defeats thanks to the French commander we encountered earlier, Villars, culminating in the Battle of Hochstedt in September 1703. The Allied aims for that year had focused on dealing decisive blows to the Spanish Netherlands and to hopefully knock Bavaria out of the war, but only the former was partly successful, as a campaign to take Antwerp, Ostend and force the French to fight a pitched battle was implemented. But the war aims were badly coordinated in the Anglo-Dutch camps, and the Franco-Spanish force marched with a certain determination that Marlborough had perhaps not been expecting. The year of 1703 thus ended with little progress being made for the Anglo-Dutch alliance, and the Austrians weren't faring much better down south. 1704 was a year in which the Allies needed to hold a great victory, and in this instance, while the Franco-Spanish forces planned to overrun the Netherlands, and while the Franco-Bavarian force planned to take Vienna, Marlborough would achieve his greatest and most famous victory at Blenheim. Marlborough achieved this by ignoring the wishes of the Dutch, who preferred to keep their troops in the Low Countries in the other major theatre of the war, as he led the English and Dutch forces southward to Germany. Eugene, meanwhile, moved northward from Italy with the Austrian army. The objective of these manoeuvres was to prevent the Franco-Bavarian army from advancing on Vienna. Having met, the forces under Marlborough and Eugene faced the French, commanded by the Duke of Tallard, at the Battle of Blenheim in August 1704. The battle was the culmination of years of frustration on the part of the Allies, who never truly got going in their campaigns in the first two years, thanks to the Bavarian element. It was hoped that by thwarting the move towards Vienna, not only would the Franco-Bavarian campaign be stopped in its tracks, but Max of Bavaria would be given reason to rethink his position in the French camp, and perhaps even join the Allies. In short, victory was desperately needed if the Allies wished to continue the war. If Eugene and Churchill lost, then Vienna would be wide open to a siege, and Leopold would be forced to peace out. The battle involved coordinated attacks by Eugene and Churchill on the right and left flanks of the army, respectively, while Churchill would then lead another force to deliver the knockout punch on the centre, 
once the flanks were significantly engaged. The battle very nearly went against the Allies, and full credit really should go to Eugene for holding up his side against the numerically superior enemy flank, while Marlborough could press the advantage. The plan succeeded eventually though, and by the end of the day the Elector of Bavaria retreated, and the French commander had surrendered. With salutes and courtesies, the French Marshal was then escorted to Marlborough's coach. The victory at Blenheim meant that Bavaria's days were numbered, and that Vienna was safe for the moment. Bavaria would eventually sue for peace and abandon the French, as the Allies hoped it would, though Max Emmanuel soon rejoined Louis on the basis that because his wife had signed the treaty, it was not valid. What a quality guy. There was little time for the Habsburgs to cry foul though, as almost immediately they turned their forces towards a Hungarian revolt, which had erupted during the previous year, and which they now had to contain. That year also saw the capture of Gibraltar by England, to round off a pretty darn successful 1704 for the Allies. In addition, Savoy had changed sides from the position of a French protectorate in the beginning of the war, to one of a member of the Grand Alliance against France in early 1704, and as that year drew to a close, it seemed as though the war was turning against Louis. 1705 was punctuated by the loss of Europe's stalwart emperor, as Leopold died in May, leaving the scene as one of the Old Order's most renowned figures. The Holy Throne passed to his son Joseph. Marlborough proved unable to carry the momentum of his victory at Blenheim from the previous year, as German forces allied to Louis and the Allied armies moved around and eyeballed one another for much of that year. The real story in 1705 was in Spain, where the pressure was being brought to bear on Philip V's regime. Allied armies could now march out from Portugal, which gave them a strategic advantage. In May, the Allied armies found major successes as they poured across the border, with the important hope of Salvatierra falling, but the real story was in Catalonia, where decades of Franco-Spanish conflict had created a suspicious Catalonian population, and where the idea of Bourbon Spain and France meant reduced Catalan independence for the future. Whether the Allies fanned these fears is anyone's guess, but by October 1705, after a short siege, Barcelona was in Allied hands, and by December, Valencia was also in Allied hands, meaning that Philip had lost two great provinces in less than a year, while Louis's allies had also failed to retake Gibraltar. All of these successes had been enjoyed on behalf of Carlos III, as he was called, or the late Leopold's second son, Archduke Charles, a fact which demonstrated how the stakes had been raised, with both sides now evidently fighting for their preferred candidate, for the Spanish throne. Louis had been stunned by these successes, and the French finances were now certainly strained, but he had reason to be positive as France still held the important fortresses and passes in the Po Valley, in Italy, and Flanders. Louis couldn't have known it, but the worst was in fact yet to come. While Marlborough saw success throughout his, while Mar, while Mar, while Marl. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 